Thank you. Thank you for your word. That is amazing. Thank you that. Um, thank you for the one who is the word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is Himself the Word of God, and we just praise you that we can know Him and and uh, just be in this living relationship with Him. I thank you so much, Father, for all that that means in our daily life and and uh, the way that that relationship holds us fast and holds us strong, Lord, as we have to go through the tsunami, actually, of life, the um, constant, uh, it's sometimes seemingly constant battering that we take from life itself. So I praise you for it, Lord, that we know you and that you love us and that you're enabling us to know that more and more. And I ask, Father, that you would um, take the distractions from our minds now, keep us focused on you so that we do understand more about this letter of Peter where he describes the enemy within, the enemy within the church. And I praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last session, um, the first session, we talked about the great danger, or the two great dangers to the early church. The first letter of Peter, they're both letters were probably written in the same year. Um, so about AD 64, not very long after Pentecost, um, maybe 30 years, um, and uh, both are written to the same group of people. Um, in First Peter, he delineates who they are to the aliens in, in Cappadocia and Galatia and various other places, and then in the second letter, he doesn't make that same uh, description, but he's writing to the same group of people. And in the first letter, we saw that he wrote mostly about opposition and persecution from the outside coming in, attacking the Christians. Actually, these people have, they're almost certainly Jews that have come out of the persecution that started in uh, Judea and Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. So they are, um, they are the ones who were, you know, who had to run for their lives, basically. Um, uh, so he's, he's writing to them, and they're still going to suffer persecution, so he's writing to them about that and, and telling them that that persecution, that opposition, is actually producing uh, or proving, testing their faith, and is uh, not testing in the way of God finding out if they have any faith, because God knows exactly what, what faith we have, but actually refining it and making it stronger. And that's what we talked about last week, that persecution from outside has the effect of building the church. It's... Um, all around our world today, you can see that places where Christians are really persecuted, those places the church is growing stronger and stronger. Then the second letter he writes is about a different danger. And I think it's one that Peter thinks is more serious because he writes in stronger terms about that danger and he talks about a danger that is inside the church. And that's to him is worse than the danger that comes at the church. Uh, because, of course, um, if there is an enemy within, he or she or it is very difficult to spot and very difficult to guard against. And so that's what his letter is about. It's about a warning that there is danger inside the church, that there is an enemy within. And the, way, the only way that they can actually um, uh, be inoculated against it or... Uh, not be affected by it. And we spent last, uh, last Tuesday talking about the way that Peter goes from 
um, sound doctrine to a godly lifestyle to a Christian perspective. And he links that three, those three things. Without sound doctrine, you can't live a godly life. Mm -hmm. And without living a godly life based on sound doctrine, you cannot have a correct Christian perspective. And we talked a bit about a, a Christian perspective. You know, what is a Christian perspective? So that's a question now for you guys. What is a Christian perspective? What differentiates a Christian perspective from a world perspective? What's the difference? Give me some examples. Looking at life from a righteous point of view. Yeah, looking at life from a righteous point of view. So give me an example of how that would um, be, how, what that would look like. According to the word of God. Yeah. So for instance, um, when you see written, uh, you know, homosexuality God hates, yeah. we take the same view. Right. So yeah. assessing sin as sin or yeah. knowing what yeah. the difference between uh, what sin is and what yeah. it is not. Yeah. In, in some ways, that yes, that's true, and that's a very kind of easy one, actually, to yeah. see. Um, because if we can't now, if you're studying the Bible and you're reading it and you're uh, praying that the Lord will help you live by it, if you're not able to, to, to see the basic sins that are listed by name in Scripture, then it's very unlikely you'll ever get a Christian perspective about anything else. So, so go s one step or two steps more than that. Think about... Um, I used my sister this morning as an example, so I use her again today, but it's not because it's about my sister, but just think about the fact that she has lymphoma, and she is very strong, and she's calm, and even though she's expecting the worst, we are all expecting the worst, she's hopeful of it not being the worst. Now, I come in with my Christian perspective, and I have peace. I have the peace of the Lord. And I look at her and think, well, your calmness and my peace look about the same. Mm -hmm. So how come you've got that? Because you're not a Christian. So now I'm thinking, okay, what does her calmness, what does her strength, it's, it looks good, doesn't it? It's good. It's very good for her. And everybody around her is thinking, well, she's taking this really well. She's managing really well. And I'm saying that to her too. And it means, but when I have to think, stop and think from my Christian perspective, what I see is that her strength and her calmness are actually weaknesses for her because they are leading her always away from God. So... That's what I mean about a Christian perspective. We can, the world would look at her response to her sickness yeah. and they would say, wow, that's amazing. You're doing so well. That's, that's really good. You need to stay positive. You need to remain confident and strong. And they would be praising her for that yeah. and, and saying, yeah, that's really good and doing everything they could to keep her going on that track. Mm -hmm. But a Christian perspective says, but that's taking you away from God. It's taking you away from the only place that you need to be getting close to. In other words, she's not relying on the Lord. It, well, she's not relying on the Lord and she's, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm just talking about just, it's a very anyone. simple, straightforward, anyone. This is anyone. So what the world sees as strength, God sees as weakness. It's a bit like Andy Murray. Yes. Everybody is admiring him for his strength, but yeah. it's simply self-made. Yes, it's, uh, yeah. It's not of God. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not sin. It, no, I don't mean it's badness or I sin. I, what I think is that we have to have this Christian perspective. If we, can, if we, don't, if we lose sight of that perspective, mm -hmm. that the only important thing, or that the most important thing in this life is to know God, mm -hmm. because knowing God is eternal life, 
if we lose sight of that, then everything we think and everything we do is based upon human values, human attitudes, human, um, you know, wisdom. Not just about your system, but mm. anybody who manifests that kind of peace mm. and calmness mm. in a crisis. Mm. It, I mean, God is so great. We oh. do not know how his ministry and your prayers mm. are working in yes. your life. Yes, yes. I'm not talking about, yes, of course, that's true. I'm praying for my sister. This could very well be God at work in her. Yeah. I'm using it as an, just an example of mm. human strength is weakness mm. for God. Because... He is weeping at the number of people who are going away from him. He's weeping at that. And what he's constantly doing is trying to draw people close. And if our perspective treats that strength as, as strength, human strength as strength, we're never going to be bothered about pulling people back to God. So my sister's perhaps a bad example because, of course, I'm praying for her. And I'm, but, but you see what I mean, right? Yeah, she's Whatever she's hoping, yeah. the reality is, if she remains strong in herself and she does not call upon the Lord, yeah. she will spend eternity well, away from him. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I was saying yeah. that from a Christian perspective, actually, um, it doesn't matter whether, she gets, whether we would get better or not because we know where we're going. That's um, right. It's yeah. what, like Paul said, you know, yeah. whether I live... For me to live as Christ or to die as gain. Yeah. Die as gain, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that circumstance, that's... Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, so can you see how the Christian perspective is totally the opposite of the world's perspective? Yeah. Now that's just one simple example. You could all think of very good examples, maybe better ones than that, to talk about the Christian perspective. But you cannot just... You don't just get a Christian perspective. It just doesn't fall on you in a moment, you know. You suddenly believe in the Lord Jesus and boom, you have a Christian perspective about everything. You don't. A Christian perspective comes out of doctrine and a godly life. That's how you get it. You get that Christian perspective when you take the truth about God, you work it into your life, you actually respond to that truth. And that is how God has decided to give you wisdom and discernment and the perspective, his perspective, if you like, um, on everything to do with your life. Um, there's so many examples, there's just so many examples, but just think about, you know, during the week, think about examples in your own life of things that you might have previously thought of as strengths or good things, mm. and that now, thinking from God's viewpoint, may not necessarily be good. Mm. Um, so we talked about that. We talked about the fact that Peter was writing to warn his readers about this danger, the danger that... Um, inside the church was coming false teaching and that false teaching was drawing them away from the truth of God and he was talking about it um, as, as a, a form of corruption and, um, and so he laid out his letter, the whole of his letter to warn people about this uh, false teaching and so we, we read through um, the letter, did we read through the whole letter last week? I can't remember but from what we talked about last week, he broke the letter into three parts. So this is, I'm still reviewing. So three parts. What's the first part of his letter about? God. Knowing God. Yeah, knowing God. Um, he uses that word know or knowledge, knowing, I don't know, 13, 14, something like that times in this letter. And um, 
And what he says is, knowing God, that's how he begins. Knowing God is the only antidote to false teaching. It's the only antidote. And then what does he go on to talk about? You know, I think that's how we, what we have to do in order to do that. Yes, he does that. But let's, say, let's well include that in knowing God because it's about a relationship. Knowing God is an experience of God. So that includes our response to him. What was his second part? He started in verse true and false prophets. Yeah, true and false prophets. And he basically talked about the true prophets. He says that we have this... Um, uh, where did we say? He says, we did not cl uh, follow cleverly devised tales. We were eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. Uh, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention. So he's talking about a, prof a prophetic, true prophets who spoke truth and um, who are verified in that truth. And then he goes on to talk about false prophets. And that false prophets takes you right the way to the end of chapter 3, basically. And then right at the end of chapter 3, he talks about his third subject, which is what? The end of the world. The end of the world. Um, it's the end of the physical world as we know it. Um, I'm just going to turn that off. If it gets cold, let me know. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and basically, that knowledge of God, uh, we said last time, it's not just knowing truth about God. Satan knows truth about God. So it's being in this experiential relationship with God. And um, he says, as I say, that's the only antidote to false teaching. And, um, and that knowing the truth demands a response. There is no truth about God that, you, that people do not respond to. Even, even non-belief is a response. So, so everything about God that he reveals about himself brings about a response in people. Think about it. I mean, every day people see the creation. Because I'm up in Warwickshire now, the sky is just magnificent and night is so clear compared to London where you can't see the stars very much. But it's just, I mean, the, the sky is just full of stars. And you look at that and, and you, as a believer, your response is just praise God for that sky. So every scrap of knowledge about God brings about a response. And, and there, but of course... There are other people who look at that sky and don't praise God. They are responding to that knowledge of God in a different way. So every single fact and truth about God demands a response and receives a response. And so our, our relationship as, a, as believers with God is living and growing and um, real and alive. But even unbelievers have their relationship with God. It's just that it is a dead relationship because they're not responding. So it's the response to the truth that actually shows the relationship. Do you see what I mean? And that's how you know that you are in that living relationship because you are responding <laughs> in a way that honours God, glorifies God, praises God. Um, and that's what Peter, that's why he spends the first half of his first chapter talking about the truth of God, the promises, the precious and magnificent promises of God, and our response to those promises. Um, so, um, and then he goes on, as I say, and talks about false, uh, false teachers, and actually he's not unique. The whole of the New Testament talks about false teachers. Every writer in the New Testament talks about false teachers. Jesus himself talked about false teachers. In Matthew 24, could we go there just um, for a little while? Matthew 24, um, and maybe read from, um, 
let's see. Um, yeah, so maybe from verse 4 to verse uh, 14, please. Just read that out. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. <clears throat> and then 9 to 14, please. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. <clears throat> and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Thank you. Um, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we won't read, chapter 3, 1 to 5, which is where he says, know this, that in the last days difficult times will come, men will be lovers of self, and he goes into that whole description. And then verse 5 he says, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. So you know then that he's talking about inside the church. And then chapter 4, preach the word in season and out of season, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will gather to themselves all these false teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Um, so, as I say, the whole New Testament talks about this uh, false teaching, this false prophecy that's going to come into the church. And uh, what it will do is this enemy within is going to draw people away. And um, from what? What will it draw people away from? Truth. From the truth. But just think about that. Just you know. From sound doctrine. Uh, yeah, from sound doctrine. Why does that matter? Because it's your relationship with God. So actually, when you know a believer, for example, who is drawn away by false teaching, thinks actually that they are carrying on that relationship with God but they are actually moving further away from God. So the reverse is happening from what should be happening. But think about this. What will that do? I mean, in Matthew, we see Jesus is very specific about what happens when false teachers come on the scene, false prophets. Look what he says here. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So what will happen because of that deception? What's his next statement? Lawlessness will increase, and, and because of that, most people's love will grow cold. So it's not that false teaching in and of itself is the most terrible thing. Of course, there's always going to be false teaching, inadvertently or deliberately, because there are, there's many people, none of us in this room have absolutely correct doctrine. So as soon as you open your mouth to talk about God, you can be sure if you talk for a day, you're going to say lots of things wrong. So we all have error in our speaking and in our thinking. It's not that in and of itself that's wrong. It's that the, the deliberate or the purposeful or the, 
the continued speaking non-truth or not doctrine about God has the result of increasing sin and decreasing love. The love of many will grow cold. The love of many for whom? For God and for one another. So actually think about that. Now this false teaching that has come in, not only is it drawing people away from God, but it's drawing people away from one another. So what we're finding is not only does it encourage sin, of course, but it also makes us cold to one another. Cold to God and cold to one another and has the effect of separating us. Every time you see false teaching, you see separation inside the church, separation in the people of God. Um, and that's what Jesus was talking about. And really, I, I, I kept thinking about this idea of false teaching and how you know, all of us here would say we're just standing against false teaching. We don't want to you know, have that in our churches, in our fellowships. We don't want, we want to know the truth so that we can actually speak the truth and live the truth. But actually, I realized that the biggest damage of all in false teaching is that the thing Jesus said he came to give us in John chapter 10, what does Jesus say? He says, I came that you might have life and life abundant. And what's that life like? It's loving and it's joyful and it's peaceful and it's powerful and it's passionate and it's, and it's motivating. It's a life of victory and conquering of enemies. It's a life of not being, um, not being afraid. It's a life that casts out fear. It's that life. Now imagine the false teaching. What does false teaching do? It brings fear. It brings fear. Yeah. And what else? It strips the life yeah. out of you. Yeah. False teaching steals joy. Yeah. It steals peace. Yeah. It steals all the life that Jesus came to give us. Yeah. And when it does that, what happens to the church? We're so weak, we can't stand. And, and, and it's not been deliberate. You know, we haven't deliberately beca become like that. It's just that false teaching, false t teaching about God strips the life out of Christians, takes the power, takes the joy, takes the peace, takes everything, and fills us with fear. And once you are filled with fear, you cannot live the Christian life as a witness to the Lord Jesus. Mm. It's impossible. Perfect yes, and all the things that we have been given as the down payment of our eternal life is taken away from us. That's the biggest tragedy of all, isn't it? Not that we get their doctrine wrong. Of course, we all get doctrine wrong. But that that life is taken from us, that joy, that peace, that power is stripped out of our life. And we end up afraid. And not just afraid. You look at Christians who've had that done to them and they are depressed and they are lonely and they, they don't know where to go. And ultimately, what's the ultimate thing it will do? Yeah, it destroys their faith. But what it will actually do is make God smaller because God will no longer be satisfying. He will no longer be fulfilling. He will no longer be victorious in their life 
because they will end up living a, a, a life that is not fulfilling. It hasn't been the life that Christ came to give them. So they'll read John 10.10, 10, I came that you had life and life abundant, and they'll say, well, I haven't got that. Therefore, God is not real. God is not true. God doesn't do what he promises. That's the biggest tragedy of false teaching. It's not that the doctrine, you know, I mean, obviously, sound doctrine is the basis of everything. It's the basis of our relationship, the health of our relationship with God. But in and of itself, it won't, it doesn't do this. It's as it is taught, as it is preached, as it is put over, it takes away everything that we stand on and all the power in our life, and it makes God small. And anything that makes God small, you know is wrong. That's what we have in our churches. We have a small God. We have a God who isn't powerful because people look at the Christians inside the church and they don't see victorious lives and they don't see joyful Christians and they don't see peace and grace and forgiveness and mercy. They see fear and depression and sadness and weakness. Well, who wants a God like that? So now it's got, not only are they stripping, not only does it strip the church of its strength and its power and its joy and its life, it also strips it of, of its witness outside. So imagine, who, who would be behind all the false teaching that wants to do that? It's Satan. He wants to do this. So the false teaching that's coming in and the people who are propagating it, all of them, I would think, well, actually not all of them, but I would say probably 95% of false teachers teach what they teach from good motives. They think that they're teaching truth. They think that they're being loving. They think that they are building up the church. And that's probably the most dangerous Yes, thing, of course. Truly yes. Exactly, it's exactly. It's more authentic and they say it with the ring of confidence and, and, and people follow. And they follow down a road that leads to weakness and, yeah, and the lack of all those things. So if, if a believer or if someone who comes inside the church and, and has believed, let's just take someone who has received Christ and has heard the gospel believed in Jesus Christ, put their trust in him, and then they're into a fellowship that is constantly stealing the joy and the life and the power out of their Christianity. They're going to walk away, of course. They're going to walk away because God will not be making good on his promise. And that is a real sadness. Um, the New Testament never condemns the people who believe deception. Oh, yes, yes. Particularly in the church, mm. we have yes. I was just about to say, actually, the New Testament doesn't talk about the, the people who are taken in by deception. It doesn't condemn them. But it does condemn the teachers of it who knowingly do that, who knowingly teach deception. That's why James says, don't any of you want to be a teacher because you will face a stricter judgment. Um, 
and, and false prophets. Jesus is quite condemning in his speak, speaking about false prophets and false teachers. But what I'm trying to say is that there are many, 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 many people inside the church who are carried away by false teaching, but they have not gone into that. They have not willingly been deceived. They have just believing it. And, and so, if Peter's, what Peter says is true, if the only antidote to false teaching is sound doctrine, then where's our sound doctrine coming from? Of course, it's coming from the Word. It's the only place. The only place. So now again, the false teaching that takes you out of the Bible and out of Bible study and out of any in-depth study is adding to the deception that is going on and stripping again. The so you don't need to read your Bible because it's a rule. You don't have to read your Bible because God's up there marking you. Basically, you know, this Bible is... Jesus. This is the Word of God, who is Jesus. And every time you read it, you partake of Him. Because He's decided. He says, doesn't He, I'm the bread of life. He who eats my, eats my flesh and drinks my blood. That's what He's talking about. He's talking about Im, Im, imbibing Him and receiving Him and being in this relationship where we're fed by Him. Um, fed with Him, actually, if that's not too much of a... That's what's happening when we read the Word of God. We are being fed with the very nature of God. And look at how Peter starts his letter. He talks about precious and magnificent promises by which we escape the corruption that is in the world by lusts and we become partakers or sharers of the divine nature. <coughs> how do we become partakers of the divine nature? So, Second Peter chapter one, verse one to four. What's the process? Knowledge. Yeah, true knowledge. But how does he? Just, just the promises themselves. Let's just go to Second Peter chapter one. Um, he says, uh, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these, what? By what? No, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. By what has he granted us his precious... By his glory and goodness, or his, by his own glory and excellence, as my translation says. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The promises that God has gifted to us, granted to us, given to us, come through the divine excellence, the glory and excellence of Christ Jesus. That's how we've received those promises, through his excellence and his glory, so that by them by those precious and magnificent promises, you become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean? By a promise, by a promise of God, I become a partaker in the divine nature. How can that be? You receive it by faith. Yeah, you receive it by faith, but you have to receive it. You receive that promise. You see, Satan, he reads all those promises. He reads all those promises but he doesn't receive them. So they don't become a part of him. 
when uh, John writes his gospel, John chapter 1, he says um, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You have to receive Jesus. There's a, a reception to it. And that reception enables you to partake of the divine nature. But not just in the first instance when you believe the gospel. Every time you believe a promise, you partake of the divine nature. Find yourself a promise. I don't know how many there are. 3,000, 5,000 promises in Scripture. I thought about her last week as I was thinking about this. You know, that she said that's why she finds faith difficult because she doesn't know the promises. And, and, and it made me think about that. Of course, if you don't know the promises, what are you actually receiving? So, I think 3,000, I don't know how many. Somebody said this morning there were 3,000 or 4,000 promises in the Bible. I mean, just, just, just read the promises and receive them for yourself. Receive them for yourself. And as you receive the promise, you receive the divine nature. You receive, you become a partaker of the divine nature. Now, it doesn't mean that, um, of course, you have the Holy Spirit when you believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm not saying, you, you know, you're, you're biting off pieces of the Spirit. I don't mean that. But what I mean is that as you believe the promises, as you receive them for yourself, you are strengthened in the way you would be strengthened if you had you know, a hearty casserole or, or bread or something. You would eat and your body would be strengthened. So now you're eating the promises of God and your spirit is strengthened and your soul is transformed. And by that, in that process, you become a partaker of the divine nature. I'm sorry if I'm going on about it too long, but it's just amazing to me how Peter, how this fisherman can write this letter. I mean, it's just incredible how he writes it. So, um, yeah, as we receive those promises, uh, we become a sharer in God's nature. Now, there are hundreds, as I say, thousands of promises in the Bible, but Peter, in this letter, talks about three promises which give rise to a fourth. So, what's the first promise of this letter? And I'll give you a clue, because you won't probably find it straight away. Do you? That's true. No. I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> It is true. I it, you like things in order. I do, but not, I've got three promises written down specifically because <laughs> it's these promises that Peter's talking about in this letter. And verse 11 is the first one. What does he say in verse 11? In this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You will enter the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. You will enter that kingdom. And there is a way that God will abundantly supply that entrance to you. You are headed for the kingdom of God. You are already in it, but there is a moment when you will walk into glory. And that entrance, that entrance into glory will be abundantly supplied to you by God. How's he going to do that? What's the process? of his abundantly uh, supplying it. Grace and peace. Yeah, grace and peace. But actually what he says here is, uh, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, 
and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and on he goes. The way that God supplies the uh, eternal, uh, the entrance into the eternal kingdom, the abundance into the eternal kingdom is how? Through your diligence to apply certain things. Exactly. Now, he's, he doesn't just say that, okay, now you better start doing all this stuff because that's the way God's going to take you in. He said something else before it in those first verses, which Carol was sort of um, taking us to. He says, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's power has already granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. So now when he says to you, apply, in your, you know, apply knowledge, apply excellence, apply perseverance, what he's saying is, lay hold of what God's already done and start to actually and actively and in reality apply that to your life. Apply it to your life. Because it's already there. You already have it. And as you do that, what do you think is happening? As you apply all diligence, as you, what is it he says, um, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. What happens as you apply those qualities? No God. Yeah. And you'll be very fruitful. Exactly. You're going to know God, Why? But, but you already know him, so how is it that you're going to know him more? By experience. By experiencing him. Mm. Because what you're doing is you're taking his provision of everything you need for life and godliness, and it's like you're saying, okay, here's God's provision. So I'm coming in the door every day, and I'm going to pick up what I need for perseverance, and I'm going to persevere. And I'm going to add to that perseverance, brotherly kindness. So I'm going to start loving you guys. I'm really going to start being kind to my brothers and sisters. I'm going to start thinking about you above myself. I'm going to start doing what God has already provided for because I know that in that way I am partaking more and more and more and more and more of the divine nature. That is the way that God is going to supply the abundance of my entrance into the eternal kingdom. So first of all, do you believe that you're headed for an eternal kingdom of God? Yes. And do you believe that there's going to be an entrance into that kingdom? We can't say no now because it writes it. The entrance into that kingdom. Here it is. So there's an entrance into that kingdom. In one way, you're already in, aren't you? Because your spirit's already born again. So you're already in, but there's going to be a day when the trumpets will blow and you will march into that glorious kingdom. And it will be amazing. It'll be like a ticker tape parade and there'll be you know, angels rejoicing and everything going on and you're going to be going in. Tell me, would you rather be going in with the abundance of everything that God supplied? Or do you want to be creeping in behind somebody else because you didn't really quite do it? No. Peter expects us to say, oh my goodness, that's all available. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. And you see how he ends this little section. He says, therefore, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and, choo and choosing you. So what does applying all these things actually also do? 
<coughs> yeah, strengthens your faith. It gives you the assurance that I am definitely going there. So all the teaching that comes your way about, well, you can't really be sure that you're going to heaven. How could you be sure? I mean, I talk to thousands of Christians, not thousands, lots of Christians who say, um, well, I'm not sure, I do my best. I'm not really sure. But there's, so there's no assurance in that. And so what Peter's saying is, as you apply these things, you are going to be sure of where you're headed. And you're going to be absolutely positive that your life is ending in glory. And I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to have that confidence? I know it's late, but get some oh, sort yes, of hallelujah are. or something. I'm you know. <laughs> Don't do that, I Eve. Am. Don't. Yes. He endured the cross. Yeah. Yeah. He is. He is. But I think that all of the New Testament writers, when they call us to this godly life, which is what I said, sound doctrine produces a godly life, produces a Christian perspective. When they call us to the godly life, if we misunderstand that as something we have to drum up or something we have to do, that strips the life out of us. Yet that is a big teaching. It's a big teaching. If you don't do that, you won't go to heaven. If you don't do that, you're not saved. But none of the New Testament writers write that. They turn that upside down and they say, if you belong to Jesus, he has already supplied everything you need. And the way you know that, you, that he has done that is that you lay hold of it for yourself. You receive it for yourself. And when you do, oh my goodness, that gives you a confidence and a power and a joy and a, and a life that is, you just cannot imitate it. You can't imitate it. So, um, that's the first promise. The first promise is that there is an eternal kingdom and God is, a, is supplying the abundant entrance into that kingdom. The second uh, promise is um, uh, where's my note? No, chapter, uh, verse 16 of the same chapter. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Christ Jesus is returning. Amen. He is returning. Amen. And that is a promise. It's a promise. He is coming back, and he is coming back for you. He's coming back for you and for me. And when he does, the third promise, which is um, chapter 3, I believe, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. When he comes back, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When he, yes. So... So we are, our entrance into the eternal kingdom is going to be abundantly supplied to us. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is coming back for us. And when he does, we will inhabit a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I mean, really, what could be better? Go ahead, Eve. Can I just ask, yes. is this, because somebody asked me this recently, mm. is it literally a new place or is it this earth? No, I think this is, um, well, it's, it's twofold, because when Christ yeah. comes, 
righteousness will dwell, but there'll still be the possibility exactly. of sin. So I think this is the new heavens, new heavens yeah. and the new earth. That's what I think he's talking about. I think he's condensing the whole thing. So he's saying Jesus Christ is coming back for us, but Peter is not delineating the time. He's, you know, he, and, and then we're going to dwell in a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Which isn't going to be here. No, it's going new, to be else new heaven, new earth. He says in Revelation, I saw yeah. the new heaven, the new earth, or yes. new city, Jerusalem. Yes. Mm. Okay, so when, <coughs> when he comes, in, in, and that's not, not at one moment, it's not all going to happen in one moment, but when he does, we're going to inhabit a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be glorious. I mean, you can't even imagine it, can you? So, and those promises all result, believing them, results in something else, a fourth promise, which we've already talked about. The promise that we become a partaker in the divine nature. Believing those promises is the, goes along with the promise that we become a partaker in the divine nature. And that word for promise in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, these promises, it's not um, a promise like I might talk to Angela and say, oh, I promise to send you an email or I promise to do this. You know, it's not a quiet thing. It is a public proclamation in heavenly places. That's what it means. It means a public proclamation in and from heavenly places. This is not a quiet thing. This is a thing that God has proclaimed. It's, it's a proclamation that I am going to enable you to enter the eternal kingdom and I'm going to come back to take you there and when I have finally finished and my plan and purpose for it all is finished, you will live with me in a new heaven and a new earth and it will be gloriously righteous. Can you see, can you see how Peter might be able to say, I'm going to always be ready to remind you of these things. I'm just going to make it my business. I know, he says, that my departure is soon. I know that I'm going soon. I'm going to die soon. He knows that. But he's saying, I'm just going to keep on reminding you so that when I'm gone, you will be able to remember this stuff. Mm. Why? Why is he so diligent to keep on reminding them and going over it all? Why? God's yeah, God's instilled it in him. But what does he know? It's so easy to slip away. Mm. Mm. It's so easy to slip away, and they will be the three things that are attacked the most, mm. because those three things yeah. will strip you of your belief. One, that God has done everything that's needed, you just need to lay hold of it, yeah. and you will have this abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom. So first of all, that there is an eternal kingdom, yeah. and it is for those people who believe and who partake of the divine nature. Secondly, that Jesus Christ is coming back for you. That is another doctrine that is completely turned upside down. And thirdly, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. That this heaven and this earth are going to be destroyed. So those three things are under attack in our day. They were under attack then and they are under attack now. And so reminding them of these things is Peter's way of making sure that we understand God is in control. He has a plan and that plan will come to fruition. Because there's just too many people who are um, disbelieving that and teaching the opposite. I've just finished writing um, 
something that will go on the website about amillennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism. You can't even say it properly, can you? It's just so. Um, and then a little piece about kingdom now, and it will go on um, on the website. It's being proofread at the moment. But actually, when you look at it, it's amillennialism is such a um, what's the word? Um, such a teaching. It's all over the church. It generally goes along with replacement theology and it is just all over the church, the Western church. This idea that there is not a thousand year reign of Christ, that prophecy will not, prophecy that's in, been in the past has, might have been fulfilled literally, but any other prophecy that's not yet fulfilled, we must understand spiritually, not literally. I mean, it just, when you actually, when you're writing it, you look at it, you think, how can people believe that? But they do. So, and it's a big teaching. It's a big teaching in the church. Um, are you putting it on your website? Are you going to teach it as well? No, I'm going to put it on the website. Actually, Mindy mentioned it to me, and, and I thought, yeah, actually, that's quite a good idea. So it will go on a tab, a new tab on the website. There'll be certain things. So Kingdom Now, I've talked about Kingdom Now, theology a little bit, and just various things. Very simply, because, you know, I'm not a theologian, but just to try and put it out there so that... So, and actually what I've said at the bottom is that I've done those things so that people know what Desiring Truth believes, what we believe. Um, but anyway, so these three things are under attack in our day. They are under attack. And that's why Peter's saying, I'm, I'm going to keep reminding you. I'm going to keep on reminding you of this. Because if you forget, you will fall prey to deception. And if you fall pay, prey to deception, you will inevitably lose power lose joy, lose the life of Christ in you, it will just inevitably start to drain away. I'm not saying you'll lose your salvation. Yeah, I'm talking about losing power, losing the life yeah. of Christ. I've experienced that, and it's horrible. Mm. It's horrible. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's depressing, and yeah. it's lonely, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's tragic, lost. actually. Yeah, lost. lost. Yeah. 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 And that was a lack of teaching. Yeah, yeah. My people's my people perish for lack of knowledge, Hosea, yeah. 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 Mm. Well, I what I Yeah, I yeah. I think that's the thing we're led to believe, that everyone's having a great time and enjoying it. And I think certainly there's a lot of emotional experience in those places. But I think when those people go home, which they have to do at some stage, they can't live there at Bethel, when they go home, the reality sets in. And then I think you have people who get sick and can't understand why God isn't healing them. Um, or something bad happens and they don't they're not prepared for it. It undermines you. And so what we're being shown online or through the teaching or the CDs or whatever it is, we're being shown powerful conferences, everybody raising their arms, wonderful music. But, you know, tr sound doctrine takes you home and keeps you strong. That's the thing. Yeah. And in the, in the valleys, you know your God, not just on the mountaintop. Whereas for us, when we do our Bible study, it's the time at home. Yes, that's, that's the best. It's so precious. Yes. It's not necessarily the best, mm. but it's very, very oh. precious. Mm. Because you're accessing, you're accessing God. You're actually in that relationship. It's wonderful. And that's why I think that real Bible study 
It's like a drug. Yes. It is. It's not that anyone forces you to carry on, it's that you love it so much you don't want to stop. You can't do without it. Yes. Yeah. And could hmm. I just ask, um, because you were going on quite... Yeah, fast. Like, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't stop to... Right. And, uh, when you were talking about um, each, uh, people who uh, follow deception are mm. not being condemned... No, not in the New Testament. But those that teach it knowingly. Yeah. Yeah. But then you previously said that those that teach it think they're teaching I think, the right thing. Oh, I yeah. think so very often bit, they do. Yeah. I don't think yeah. everybody thinks they're teaching the right thing. I think that some people's motives are pure selfish. But would they be condemned? Oh, definitely. They if, will face... If they didn't know? Uh, if they didn't know, no. I think saying. there's a line... I mean, yeah. I think there are levels of judgment in yeah. all things and yeah. levels of rewards. Well. Yeah. So, so, so there's, there's just some people are in that category and some are in yeah. that. Definitely. But then surely we are still responsible to what we believe in. Absolutely. Yeah. And we are actually more responsible yeah. now because we know yeah. about yeah. this false yeah. teaching. Yeah. So we are, yeah. we are responsible yeah. to do our part to dispel yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. We're told, we're told to test. Yeah, test yeah. the prophets, yeah. test yeah. the teaching. And I think, but, yes. but I, what I think is really important is that we don't go in all guns blazing, no. shooting no. everybody who thinks yeah. differently or has no. for, yeah. it, believes deception. Because you're killing the hostages. Yeah. Ultimately, yes. Satan yes. Is, yes. is the kidnapper of yes. souls. Yes. And so you, you never do, you know, if you see the SAS movies, they don't go in and shoot the hostages. They shoot the kidnappers yeah. or, or whoever they shoot. Do you see what I mean? So we're supposed to know enough to know that person is deceived. Mm -hmm. That's a tragedy mm -hmm. of enormous proportion mm -hmm. because it defames Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. It hurts them. So how can I... In my small way, how can I make right that deception? How can I lead them out of that? You know. In Jude, Jude and Second Peter are very similar, and, and Jude says, "Just snatch them from the fire, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh." He says, "So don't get yourself involved in the in the deception and the corruption, but still pull them out of the fire." So if you know someone who goes to Bethel regularly. You know, pray for that person. Yes. Because Bethel is false teaching. At its core, it is false teaching. Because it is teaching kingdom now. It is teaching that there are a group of believers who are overcomers or Joel's army or something like that. And they are going to reclaim the world for Christ. And when they've reclaimed the world, he's going to come back. Hey, what, Bill Johnson, no, but he's... No, no, I didn't mean that. Oh, Jesus, Jesus doesn't. doesn't say that. No, well, no, uh, the, the answer is Revelation 19, exactly. because right. if he comes back with a sword from his mouth and he yeah. slays the, the wicked yeah. and he rules with a rod of iron, well, if everybody's good by the time he gets back, why does he need the rod of iron and so, why does yeah. he have the sword from his mouth? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. So yeah. Christ doesn't come back to a good world. He comes no, back right. to a world that is more wicked mm -hmm. than it is now. And in a way, it's consumption, isn't it? Very, yeah. But so, but what I'm saying is, the people who are going and being fed those lies, then they're, they're not in deep Bible study. They no. cannot be Do they not believe because they, they don't know. That they will suffer. No, I don't think so. I think but they believe that. So. Yeah, I know. But if you don't read it, you don't know it. <laughs> also, they can be in a form of Gnosticism, thinking yes, that thinking they've got superior, superior knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Well, and that's well, certainly well, the well, teachers. Well, Sorry, Mindy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Exactly. 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 I think some people are for it. I mean, I wouldn't I like to name them. See, well, Benny them. Hinn, for example. Yeah, but then I think they think they're right. Uh, do they? Do they? Do I they know. know it's wrong? I don't know. I, I, I find it very hard it to think. Wrong, but also when you yeah, I, I don't know, Angela. Wanting the shiniest yeah. light to be on him, so yeah. you know, like yeah. and the person <laughs> arranging the lighting, you know, saying, <laughs> yes. what sort of Christian is that? You know, yeah, like, I think that, I mean, Jesus mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. gives you the impression that they know what they're doing. Right. In Matthew 24, when he says, um, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, yes. Yes. and yes. mislead many. Yes. So there is that spirit yeah. of that that's yeah. going on. Now, I w yeah, I mean... Yes. It's almost as if they get taken over. No. Yeah. It's, well, it's well, satanic, it is. False, yeah. false teaching comes ultimately from Satan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to a certain level, everyone is ensnared by it, yeah. the teachers and the people who are being taught. Mm -hmm. But... Um, and somebody actually says it from the Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And you know it's wrong. It's difficult to challenge them. It is, very, it is. Yeah, Do they it is. Encourage people to read their Bible? Hmm? Do they encourage people to read their I don't know. I don't know. This is like a morning. Yeah, I, I love you, Maria. Sorry, I <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I, I just, I know, I know. Uh, yeah. And you're right. <laughs> it's not in there, I won't believe it. Exactly. <laughs> no, but that's the work of God in you. That's because you wanted the truth and God gave you that desire. It he fulfilled that desire. Yeah. For me. Yeah. So, but. Yeah, but there's so many other aspects in here yeah, that sure. it's, you know. Sure. In the situation I'm talking about mm. is that I know a boy going through <coughs> anything where he's doing a sentence. Yeah. Church. Oh, yeah. Well, I've told one. Anyway, <laughs> it is very difficult, John. It's very difficult. And also it's very difficult because probably the pastor of a local church is himself deceived mm -hmm. rather than someone who is try in, knows deliberately that they're deceiving. Mm -hmm. So now it's even more difficult because now you love that person or we're supposed to love that person and, and we want to help him, mm -hmm. but he doesn't even know he needs help. And actually he ends up thinking you need help because you're <laughs> criticizing him. So yeah. the thing gets very complicated. Um, but that's why we need to pray all the time about it. That's why we have to be sure. That's why we have to be, have the humility to know none of us has perfectly great, perfect doctrine. We do not. Every one of us in this room has things wrong in their doctrine. You know, God ultimately is a mystery. And no one totally understands everything that he says and everything that he does and how he does it. Because if you did, you would be God. So the, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Who has known the mind of the Lord that, that we would be able to be his, uh, what is the, how does that verse go? Who has known the mind, mind of the Lord that we should be his counselor? Um, I don't know, probably, but it's somewhere in there. Somewhere in here it does say that, yeah. 
So, um, okay, so Peter will say he wants to remind them of all this thing because there is a counterfeit Christianity. There is a fake Christianity, and it is leading millions astray and ultimately leading them to hell. Because if you believe a fake gospel, you have a fake saviour. And if you have a fake saviour, you have no salvation. That's the thing. So um, we are responsible to know sound doctrine. And Peter will say, if you know sound doctrine, the one who knows God is blessed because he knows him. So we are blessed because we know God. And he puts this description out there. He says, the one who knows God is blessed. The one who knows God acts on that knowledge. And the one who knows God should never forget what they know. It's quite simple, actually. The one who knows God is blessed. So do you feel blessed that you know God? Because it is a great gift to you. God has gifted every person in this room with the knowledge of himself. That is a, it's a blessing. That they act on that knowledge. So I'm taking that from blessed by that knowledge is chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Acts on that knowledge is verse 5 to verse 11. And should never forget what they know is verse 12 to verse 15. So that first 15 verses is just absolutely packed with the essence of this, this letter. We did this Um, we did a, a we had a conference which was called yeah. Precious yes. and Magnificent so, Promises. Yeah, that really struck me that time. I'm so pleased to go back to it. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing yes, see, it's an I amazing say, section. You say never forget what we know. Yeah. Well, you see, I would say I must be reminded of Yes. 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 <laughs> but that's but I think that's part of that Eve. That actually everyone in this room should say like Eve, we all need to be reminded all the time. Because we don't remember it. Um, so, God doesn't, is not content to just move you into your family. That's what you know from Second Peter. God won't leave you just as a little tiny baby Christian. He is not content with that. He wants you to grow up and receive and grow and be strengthened. And, because all of that is ultimately the best for you and also the best for your witness for him. And so that's what he wants. Um, and in all of that, in all of that knowing God, responding to God, remembering, trying to do everything to remember him, what's happening in you as you do all of that? Strengthening yeah, strengthening ourselves, but also what's happening? What's the big promise of God to you? When I say God does not content for you to be a baby, he wants to grow, you grow, to grow up. To grow up in what, exactly, to what? From glory to glory into the image of Christ. So God is not content for you to be a baby. He wants you to walk like Christ and talk like Christ and live like Christ. Because Jesus is the witness in this world. And those who, who know God, who understand that that's a blessing, who want to respond to that knowledge, who want to do everything they can to remind themselves of everything that God has done, they are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And when that happens, that's what I mean about being a drug, you want more and more and more. <clears throat> if you know you're being transformed into the image of Christ, I mean, that is just an amazing thing. Mm. And you just want that more and more and more. What's Christ like? Oh, perfect. He's perfect. perfect. What else? Well, he's pure. He's pure. 
holy, righteous, exactly glorious, full of life and joy and peace and full of grace, full of truth, a true friend, good listener, what else, always there, he's the way, the truth and the life, so tell me, do you want to be made like someone, do you want to be made like him? Do you want to be made like Jesus? Because if you've got any shred of doubt in your mind, you don't believe what we've just talked about. If you think that you don't want to be like Christ, that it's just too much of a stretch, I mean, that's just too much effort. If that's even, even the thought of that is there, then really check yourself out. Because it's not that you have to be that, it's that you want to be that. It's not that you'll get to be like that in this life, you won't. But when you see him, you will be like him. It's that, it's the desire for God that pleases God and that he answers. And so, I mean, you know, we are all imperfect people and we fall and we fail and we sin and we... And sometimes we don't care, and, and we don't love, and we just want to hibernate and, and do our own thing. And, and, and all of that is not evidence that you're not saved. The single biggest evidence that you're not saved is that you don't care about being made more like Christ, that you're not bothered about it. Um, again, all of the New Testament writers talk about a witness inside of the Spirit. Paul will write in Romans that there is a witness of the Holy Spirit within you, Romans 8. He talks about it. And that all who live by the flesh or who want to live by the desires of the flesh will die. And all who live by the Spirit will live. And that there is this desire in us to want to live by the Spirit and want to live and to be made more like Jesus. And, you know, I say it a lot of times, but check yourself out. That's what Paul will write. Check yourself out. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, he says, um, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Peter will write, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. There is a faith that's not the same kind as biblical faith. And it may look like faith, but it's not real faith. It's not saving faith. And that's why he's going to say, be all the more diligent to be sure of his calling and choosing you because there is a faith that looks like Christianity and it is a million miles from God. To those who have a faith the same kind of, as ours, Jude will write, um, uh, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation but I had to write to you about people who have crept in unnoticed but he writes about the faith. Um, I can't remember the verse now. Sorry, I started to quote it and I can't remember where the verse is. <coughs> Let me find it. <coughs> yeah. I felt the necessity to write to you. This is verse 3 of Jude. Appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. There is the faith that we have. And if you don't have the faith, you have no faith. Mm. You do not have saving faith. Um, so I, um, you know, maybe just to... You certainly don't want to put out faith in Matt, which is not like you're in the 30 base. Oh, no, really? Wow. Is that what you just... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
But sometimes people don't say faith in who? Because they said, do you have faith? Or, you know, people talk about faith. Mm. But mm. faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, but that's why I think it's important that we know it's the faith. Yeah. It's the faith. faith yeah, yeah. The it's, faith. it's exactly. It's not faith. You know, you could have. Yeah, but it's not that. It's the faith. Um, okay, so do you have the faith? That's what Peter will want them to know about. And um, and actually, it's really interesting. In Romans eight, we haven't got time to read it now, but Romans eight nine to seventeen, there are a lot of ifs in that section. It's about if you have the Spirit, then this happens, and if and if and if and if if indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells within you. And Paul writes that in that chapter eight, which is like a mountaintop chapter in Romans. Mm. He's not trying to frighten them. He's trying to say to them mm. that the reality is, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you live differently. Your desires are different. Everything about you is different than it was before. And it is a really good way of testing yourself to see. Uh, because Peter has said, hasn't he, God's divine power has provided everything you need for life and godliness. There's nothing that you don't have, that I don't have, to enable me to live a righteous and a godly life. Church once, and somebody came to preach, and they said, um, "If you want more of God," mm. and, and our own pastor got up afterwards and said, "Actually, you don't need more of God. You've got everything you need." Mm. Uh, I've never forgotten mm. that. Mm. As, as a, a sure sign when people start offering you something else, something, something else, yeah. More, mm. You know, and everybody wants more. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. I think that you have to twist that round, actually, and say, God wants more of you. Yeah. If you're not experiencing God, it's because you haven't given him more of you. you know. So, yeah, you're, yes, that's right. So, in chapter 3, you see, it's important that we understand that, just to finish, is that because in chapter 3, this verse that we quote to talk about God not bringing the end of the world yet because he's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You know that verse? Mm. Chapter 3. Um, um, where are we? But do not let this fact, verse 8, escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now really look at that verse. Who is God patient toward? Us who? Believers. He is patient towards you believers. Why? He wants you all to repent. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to repentance. So all of these people he's writing to... Be, be they, they think they're believers or they're partially believing or they're actually believers, what Peter is saying is there is a way to test the faith. And God's writing and he's patiently waiting for you to come to repentance. And this is not strange just to Peter. Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. At the end of that he says, Therefore, brethren, I beg you on behalf of God on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he's writing to Corinthian believers, to the church in Corinth. So Paul knows there are people there who are not living the way they should be living. 2 Corinthians 5, it's 17 to 21, but I'm not sure exactly which verse that is. So it's, 
he knows that there are people who are not living the life. And he's saying, repent, repent, repent. So here in Peter, the same thing, but he's patient toward you, toward you who I'm writing to, wanting you to come to repentance. Um, so um, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and only he can save. No amount of faith, no matter how sincere it is, will save you. Only the faith in Christ Jesus will save you. And faith in Jesus Christ always has results, tangible results in this life. You can see the evidence in your own life. I'm not talking about you can look at me and see the evidence. I mean you can look at yourself and see the evidence of the faith. So how, what questions would you be asking yourself? Do I want to be made more like Christ? That's the first question. Do I want to be made more like Christ? Do I want God to change me on the inside? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do I think I need to change? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And do I want to live holy and righteous? And actually, honestly, the last question, not every day. You know, honestly, I mean, that's the truth. Some days I wake up and I just think, you know. Well, it's just, it's, it's not effort, but the deception comes straight away that it's going to be effort. And so, you, you know, so be honest with yourself. And then at the end of those questions and the answering, and yes, you're saying, yes, hallelujah, yes, I do, yes, I do, then ask yourself another question. Am I changing? Am I actually changing? Because God has promised that I will. And that is giving a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier to see it in other people. Yeah, it is, of course. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But tell me, Anne, do you want to be more like Christ more now than you did twenty years ago? I mean, is your desire to be like Christ growing? Yes. Then that's a change in you. Yes. And as I say, the desire to please God pleases God. You know, the actual doing. You know, He knows that one day you're going to get there. It's going to be perfect. But it's the desire for him that you are stoking up as you praise him, as you study his word, as you pray, as you do those things. You are feeding your desire, your passion for God. Even though you fail. We will fail. We're humans. You know, and, and, and you still have part of your old nature there that you're having to fight every day. And make no mistake, that old nature does, is pretty strong. You know, and, and that is a battle. And that's why Paul writes about it in Romans. He says, you know, if, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. There's a, a battle going on. Oh, yes. Hey? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not the fail. It's not the number of times you fail. It's not, not the number of times you don't do what you think you should do. It's how you get yourself up and then how you determine to move on again with God. <coughs> That's the thing. But, you know, even in there, I want to put a caveat <laughs> because, you know, if you tell children it doesn't matter, you know, it's all okay, don't worry. You know, the tendency of a little child is to say, oh, it doesn't matter then, I can, I can yeah. do what I want. Yeah. It won't matter. Mm. 
So if you hear that from the Lord, oh, don't worry about failing, don't worry, it's okay, I love you anyway. If you hear that and it turns into, right, I'm going to live every way I want to live, then oh, go back to the beginning because your desire is not right. Sin should make you feel sad. We talked about that last week. Forgive you, but don't do it again. Yeah, he does. Yeah, but he knows that you will. Yeah, yeah, but he's not saying. <laughs> no, he's not. No, he's not. Also, he's not exactly. Yeah. With forgiveness, is still the consequence for the sin. Yeah. yeah. Eve, I mean, we can't oh, sorry, end there. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, but that's willful sin. That's not always, you know, I mean, a lot of what we do is, we, you know, it's just, it's just human weakness. We're fighting our battles, but we're done. Yeah, you're talking about deliberate rebellion against God. That will bring consequences, yeah. Sometimes, not always, because God's gracious and loving. The grace of God and us letting ourselves off the hook. Yeah, exactly. Because when yeah. you receive God's grace, you just want to praise Him and yeah. thank Him and yeah. thankful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's why no one has to tell you how, you know, no one else can test your salvation. Yeah. Only you can test your salvation because it is so much about your desires and, and your heart for God. And, and the fact that if you, if you don't spend any time in his word after two weeks or three weeks or a month or whatever it is, you feel bereft. And if you don't pray, you know, you just, it's so sad. You know, I mean... Jesus came, didn't he, that we would know God and mm. we would have eternal life. Yeah. And Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. If Thank you, Jane. Okay, so I think we've reached the end. Um, ask those questions. Do I really have the faith? Is my desire for God? Is my desire for Jesus? Uh, because God has promised one day I'll be like him. If you're not really bothered about being like him, you're in the wrong place. So, yeah, I know. It's time to end. It's not a rotten tomato, so I'm okay. <laughs> so, Father, we want to um, pray. We want to praise you, Lord God, because... Even though, as Simon has just found out, that vote in Parliament has been lost, nothing is lost with you. Nothing is lost or forsaken. Or You are a God who will bring about your purposes within our nation and the world and in our own lives. You will do it, Lord God, and we trust you. We trust that you will cause all things to work together for our good because we love you and are called according to your purpose. So now, Lord God, we come to you and we say whatever it is you want us to do or be or say, in whatever way you want us now to stand and to walk and to be your people, show us how to do it, Lord God. For we believe that you have given us everything we need for this life and godliness that you call us to. And we want, Lord God, with every part of our being to live that life for you. 
And so, Father, we trust you. I trust you, Lord God, that you will show me how to be. You will show me how to be in the days ahead that we're going to face now. Um, that you will show me how to be and how to witness for you. And I just praise you, Lord God, for the great privilege of being able to do that. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 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 Amen.